Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. (laughs) I'm Sonia. No. (laughs) (laughs) We we, we just switch over entirely to Twitch streaming. (laughs) Twitch streaming Ubu Girls. What, What would we play? I mean, obviously, we would have to play like historical inspired video games and uh. then and then rate them based on accuracy. <laughs> Can confirm Skyrim 10 out of 10. Perfect. <laughs> All of them are terrible. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay, but today we're talking about criminals. Yes, today we talk about criminality, criminals, pirates, smugglers. Thieves, brigands, non law abiding citizens. Yes. Uh, we figured we'd cover this because, you know, last week we talked about women who made their living not necessarily outside of the law, but like they were on thin ice <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, in, in many cases. And, and we wanted to talk about, you know, kind of the quote-unquote more male dominated criminal Mm -hmm. activity that's not to say that there were no women who engaged in smuggling or who were outlaws or whatever but well you know this by and large we're talking about about that today yeah we're doing it it. as per usual i'm gonna start us off in the middle ages and talk to you about outlaws Talk to you about smugglers. Talk to you about about brigands, <laughs> highwaymen, <laughs> and uh, then Margot's gonna take it away from there into into the new world across the ocean. Pirates talking about piracy and It's not good enough to be copyright struck. It's fine. Thank you for that. Now I don't have to add anything to the. okay i just i'm here i i produce all the music for our podcast just so everyone knows obviously (laughs) i don't i I do not that's that that is a lie all right let's get started so here we go we're gonna talk about outlaws to begin with let's commit some crimes crime time be gay do crime (laughs) Yes. Um, okay. So Fully what endorse. Is, what is exactly an outlaw in the Middle Ages? Because I'm sure everyone has heard about, you know, things like the story of Robin Hood, who's like the good outlaw who <laughs> robs from the rich and gives to the poor. Yeah. An outlaw in English common law. And there, it, it is something that also dates to, um, 
you know, it, it was something that did happen in throughout Europe. But mm-hmm. for the purposes of this, I mean, it's it's literally someone who exists outside of the law. So <laughs> what happens is you commit some type of a crime. Right. Now, this couldn't just be like a civil suit. It had to be like um, you've been charged with um, some kind of like an actual crime against like you know like you couldn't become an outlaw over like a minor dispute it had to be like you ignored a summons to court you were charged with murder you were charged with robbery like you know it wasn't like because because we've talked about in earlier Mm -hmm. episodes right like yes you could technically take someone to court for calling you assorted names for saying that her house hath no thatch but that that's not good enough to get you outlawed yeah so what happens is you become an outlaw if you commit a crime are summoned to court and then don't show up in court because you're basically deemed as well you didn't show up in court therefore you are yeah you did the crimes you, you definitely did it because if you hadn't done it like surely you would appear in court to defend your good name yes at that point you were deemed an outlaw and that means you are outside the protection of the law ah which means that anyone could basically harm you, harass you, kill you, etc., because you no longer have standing before the law. Mm-hmm. It was one of the harshest penalties in the legal system. Um, for example, in early Germanic law, the death penalty is actually absent because outlaw, like being outlawed slash, like was basically the most extreme punishment. And I mean, in practice, it is essentially a death sentence because, like, someone's definitely going to kill you. (laughs) Slash, you, like, can't really live in society anymore. So you're just, like, by yourself being real sad. (laughs) Right. There were also, uh, there there was a similar concept under Roman law, which was the status of homo saker and persisted throughout the Middle Ages. So Mm -hmm. you have this, like, ongoing idea of, okay... If you commit a crime and you don't show up to court, you no longer get the protection of the law. You are guilty and you no longer get to live in a society. (laughs) Uh, The way that the English common law in particular spells it out, I I really like it. You would be be given the pronouncement of a caput lupinum, which means... Literally, may he bear a wolfish head or let his be a wolf's head. Um, And the idea was like equating that person to a wolf in the eyes of the law, meaning like you could kill him on sight as you would with any other wild animal that approached you. Ruthless. Yeah, it was pretty wild. (laughs) Uh, I guess technically now is the time to say that women couldn't be outlaws um, because they would be called waived, like their rights were waived rather than outlaws. Uh, But it was effectively the same punishment. You had no legal recourse. You had no... um, It's just an interesting bit of terminology there that I thought was kind of fun. Fun fact. (laughs) So basically, to become an outlaw, the rules around it were you were basically barred from all of society nobody was allowed hypothetically to give him food shelter any type of support 
because to do so would be the crime of aiding and abetting an outlaw slash a criminal. So it's basically this idea of like, it's the same kind of idea of wanted dead or alive. (laughs) Right. Right. And basically outlaw, like killing an outlaw, you could hypothetically be done with impunity because it was seen as like not only lawful but like honorable to kill this person who's running around having committed some kind of crime right like if you kill a murderer mm-hmm. good good job you, you <laughs> got rid of a murderer yeah. we no longer have a, a murderer prowling around right <laughs> prowling. um you know just like skulking around waiting to strike i don't know it's not what else is he gonna do he's not allowed to to eat with people he's not allowed to stay anywhere he just kind of has to like wander the night um but there was a caveat that you do have to declare this fact like if you kill an outlaw you immediately have to come forward and be like haha i have killed this outlaw Uh. because if you don't come forward with it like if you are just like yeah, I stabbed Jim and then we buried him in the yard and called it a day, like, (laughs) then you could be turned around and, like, the family could come after you for, like, not, um, like, basically for, like, killing someone out of order. Like, you didn't, um, like, like, it's this idea of once the person is, like, you are allowed to kill the, uh, an outlaw okay. under the law, but you have to, like, own up about it. Okay. Because if you, like, try to keep it secret, then the family actually can come after you and ask you to pay a geld, which is, like, yeah. a, like the money that you're owed for slaying, basically, a kinsman. <laughs> um, so that was, like, the rules of common law is basically, yes, please go out and kill outlaws, but uh, y- you have to come tell us about it. Which I think is, like, kind of a good plan. Like, if you're yeah. just going to have vigilante justice, like, <laughs> you don't just want everyone running around being like, yeah, we we killed that guy. He was an outlaw. I promise. Definitely I promise. an outlaw. <laughs> Definitely not just the, you know, I really want his land and he's a terrible neighbor and he keeps, like, throwing stuff into my yard and I keep telling him to stop. Like, <laughs> you know, you need to you need to have an actual, like, uh... Uh, a good a good reason really and basically that's what outlawry was supposed to look like essentially was like effectively a death sentence yeah that, like, uh, but you just yes. say that they're outside the law and then somebody just some rando comes and kills them <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> Uh, and I will say, like, I think a-, a lot of, you would think that it would be hard to enforce this, but mm-hmm. I think people have to remember that, like, medieval communities are small. Like, yeah. even big cities are maybe, like, you know, in the tens of thousands, right? Yeah. Like, 
you're and, and like to say nothing of smaller towns of small villages like people yeah. know who belongs there and who's a stranger so if you're just some rando passing through town like the other thing is right like t- neighboring neighboring towns and villages do communicate with each other mm-hmm. so like there are records from courts with like you know this guy was banished in in this city and then he tried to go and like make a new life for himself like Mm -hmm. two towns over and then he got executed in that town for like trying to (laughs) evade his banishment yeah because they like sent a letter along and were like by the way steve's not allowed in society anymore (laughs) like fuck steve (laughs) (laughs) um so that's that's something to keep in mind right is that like this was a very serious punishment Mm -hmm not trying to overlook that however there definitely were ways that you could do quite well for yourself as an outlaw right if you you know played your cards right uh the first is obviously uh take to the woods get get into that forest because you know that's technically kind of outside the realm of like civilized society Mm -hmm. if you will um and uh, there were people who you know would basically so basically what you could do was you could flee to the forest and essentially make a life for yourself as a brigand like you could just Mm -hmm. basically rob passing people on the road in the woods whatever take their stuff make a run for it get back deeper into the woods and like a lot of the time this is like a pretty good spot to hide because there's not that many people who know all the ins and outs of the forest um and a lot of people would be scared even to follow you into there because i think we forget that like this is not like a well-kept national park yet (laughs) like to be clear there were some forests that were essentially kept as deer parks like for aristocracy the kings right but when you're going into like the woods like (laughs) there's boars there's wolves people are probably not gonna bother you too much if you're just like yeah i've set up my my situation i have my little encampment deep in the Mm -hmm. forest and i come out every so often and rob people and like that seems fine um and basically there was a point where you could um like there's if if you are able to amass like a gang for yourself basically like you could have some protection because again i mean you're at a point where you have been ousted from all society the only other people who are going to associate with you are other outlaws so what do they do they band together that's you know the basis of the story with robin hood right is that you have the band of merry men who are all a bunch of outlaws. They've all been kicked out of society yeah. and are like, well, we have absolutely nothing to lose. So I guess we'll just like live in the woods and steal from people. Now, the reason yeah. Robin Hood becomes folklore is because it's this idea of, you know, wealth redistribution. And like, I will rob from the rich to give back to the needy. Um, but, yeah. you know, a lot of a lot of real life. um <laughs> You know, outlaw gangs were not so altruistic. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them were not going to be above, like, <laughs> just straight up robbing 
anybody and keeping it because again yeah you're looking at a life where you have been ousted from society and it's basically just desperation driving you at that point in the extras this week i will be talking about the man and his his crew who uh (laughs) seem to have inspired or at least potentially could have been one of the one of the like figures that the robin hood legends were modeled after and it's a fascinating Mm. story so go check those out after um but the other thing is right we have to remember that being outlawed was a sentence from the crown right so that's the king passing down that judgment right like think of it as like Mm -hmm. i don't know like federal law right (laughs) so you have a lot of the time people being outlawed who have maybe some martial experience maybe they know how to use some weapons have killed before they're pretty desperate they don't really have anywhere to go to well you could say go to a lord of a manor and say hey um i will fight for you i will be part of your retaining like group of fighting men uh if you are willing to to uh overlook my shady past and a lot of them did a lot of the nobles they're like i don't care what the king said about this like you know we we have to remember that the middle ages is not it's not this time of like absolute like monarchical control right yeah exactly it's not like you know it's it's not 18th century France where it's like you have to be like in line with the kit. It's like mm. I have divine right to control all of these, yeah, things. And, Sun King kind of. Yeah, exactly. Whereas like this is still a time where it's like yeah, sure. Like obviously we have this king, and we think that he is ruling by divine right. But like, mm-hmm. I'm also gonna do whatever I want. Like, if I want to add more men to my retaining crew, if I want to have more people in my retinue, if I want to have more people to guard my lands, uh, I'm going to do it. I don't care. Like, what what are you going to do? Come after me? Like, yeah. no, the king's not going to go after his lords because the thing is the lords hold a lot of power in a feudal system. Because, yeah. oh, wow, if the king needs people to fight, he needs to have his lords on his side who will then like rally their troops and knights like it's a it it is a top down you know all the pieces have to line up the king <laughs> can't just like snap his fingers and make people do things and the other thing is you don't want to risk taking on like another noble or aristocrat because they could hypothetically rise up in a rebellion against you uh, as many of them do throughout the Middle Ages. Like, it is not uncommon right. for a bunch of disgruntled nobles to get together and say, you know what, like, King What's-His-Face really sucks. Let's, let's <laughs> get rid of him. Let's put someone else on that <laughs> throne. Because, like, again, it's not this, like, completely rigid set-in-stone system yet. Mm-hmm. And a-, a lot of the time, the, like, nobility basically had quite a bit of power. So you could basically join up with a 
with a local lord as one of his hired thugs and nobody could touch you and that was that so those are kind of two of the main things um with outlawry and now i do want to uh switch gears a little bit and talk about Mm -hmm. smuggling because that was another like huge this this comes up more so in the late middle ages um because it's the middle ages and then into the early modern period um Outlaws become less and less common um, as as we make our way into the early modern period. Um, mm-hmm. I-, I will say, like, it wasn't completely abandoned. The last living practice of an outlaw was in 1855 to William John Banks. Uh, basically, he was outlawed by due process of law for not attending his trial for homosexuality. Oh. Yeah. In oh sorry, he was um he was outlawed he died in 1855. He was outlawed um in 1835. Still so, like it. Yeah, it's it's not <laughs> great, but that's the last known outlaw, so I guess that's like kind of oh, okay. You know, that's kind of a cool thing to be known for. And I mean, you know, it was the 1800s, so he's like, fine, I'm outlawed in England. He moved to Venice. Like, he was just oh. chilling in Venice in the 19th century. So, I'm like, <laughs> honestly, I can't, like, yeah, that sucks, but, like, I can't feel too sorry for you. He was also an MP <laughs> for several different constituencies, so, like, he had a good oh. life. Like, he was doing yeah. okay for himself. He was a well-to-do fellow. <laughs> <laughs> who like seems to have have made the best of the situation really yeah all right so um but yes for the most part outlaw uh, the the practice of making someone an outlaw kind of falls out of favor um partly because sorry like it it's basically because as places um become like more heavily populated and more densely populated it becomes much harder to escape coming to trial, basically. Like, yeah, right? Because okay. the whole purpose of being an outlaw is that, like, the reason you're an outlaw instead of being executed or acquitted is because you did not attend your trial. Um, whereas, you know, as places become more, like, as, as you get a denser population, it's a lot harder for someone to just avoid showing up in court. Because the authorities can find you a lot easier when, you know, there's not miles and miles of woods and fields and whatever between (laughs) you and the next settlement, right? Like, someone's going to notice. Like, you know, Britain's not a big place. They can find you, like, (laughs) as compared to, like, you know, the 13th century where it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, he went into the woods. We'll never see him again. There's more like, there's more like governmental infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. And like, both in terms of personnel and you know roads get a little bit more uh, infrastructured, if you will. The point is, it's a lot easier (laughs) to track you down at a certain point. Yeah. But I do want to talk about smuggling for a little bit. Oh yeah, we still have a bit of time, Uh, because that's sort of another like prime criminal activity that people were doing um now it seems primo cream of the crop i mean genuinely it seems like um this really starts to become like 
obviously smuggling has a very long and controversial history. Um, basically, anytime yeah. something has been banned from import or export, you can have smuggling. But I'm going to talk <laughs> about the English wool smuggling trade because that wool is smuggling? wool wool smuggling that's the thing you think it's gonna be like <laughs> wine <laughs> tea sugar no well, Rum, i mean they they like yeah they were also brandy, smuggling yeah. of yeah they smuggled those but the wool trade whole oh, incredible okay so basically what happens is in the 13th century uh-huh. edward the first this is like 1275. He sets up the first like national customs collection system. And he's like, okay, if you want to do trade here, that's fine. Uh-huh. But you need to pay pay the toll. You need to pay the troll toll. And <laughs> to a lot of people are like, boys <laughs> exactly. And they're like, now the thing is, it was mostly, it seems that a lot of these taxes were on exporting goods. Because, you know, they don't want their goods leaving the country necessarily. Like, if you want to export certain items, uh-huh. you have to pay the, like, exit fee, essentially. <laughs> okay. Because basically what happened was you have a whole bunch of wool being produced in England. Now, yeah. there had been a lot of wool production in England, just in general, for, like, centuries. Because it's a pretty pretty great place for sheep grazing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. They really like it there. But, you know, at, by, by the 13th century, the sheep really, really thriving, doing amazing. And you also have this, like, textile, like, proto-industry starting up, right? Where mm-hmm. in England, they want to process these bags of wool into cloth and then sell that cloth. Okay. But people on the continent were willing to pay way, 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 way more for a bag of English wool because the sheep that they had in England and the, I guess, the, uh, like, diet that the sheep had, like, the grass or whatever was better. Okay. Um, so it actually was created much longer fibers, and the fibers were much, ah. like... Um, like tougher, right? Yeah. Like they were not maybe not tough is the right word, but much more like, like they're hard like to stronger. Break. Yeah, stronger thank you. They're very they're strong and they're long, so they were really really sought after on the continent. Um, but you have yeah, because it'd be Edward. easier to spin. Yeah, so it's easier for spinning. It's easier for weaving, and it mm-hmm. creates right this better cloth. Mm-hmm. So they're like, we don't actually like. You need to be paying taxes if you want to sell this out of the country but of course nobody was going to do that because they were trying to impose a tax of three pounds per bag of wool leaving england which like at the time was a lot of money right like i mean even if it's for a big bag of wool that's still a lot of money back in the day Mm -hmm. so basically a lot of the time you had people moving it back and forth specifically this is where my knowledge comes in out of romney marsh which is a wetland (laughs) on the southern coast of england that i am studying for my dissertation along with some other areas but anyway the point is uh, wetlands are difficult for outsiders to navigate Mm -hmm. it's right on the coast Mm -hmm. so basically it's very easy to hide your activity and it becomes for the next like 300 years the place for smuggling things 
just generally, but wool in particular, because you had so many sheep that were grazing in that, like, general area. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you could just smuggle this out and sell it for a way, way higher price on the continent than you would ever get in England for it. So that was really the... That's that's all I have to say on that is just... It, that's a fun fact. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, that's, like... Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's just that, like, that was a very... That was a thriving, like, criminal activity until they essentially, like, kind of shut her down by, like, the 19th century when, Hmm. again, law enforcement starts to get... That's a long time for that, too. Yeah, like, it's it's a long, long time, and it's, it's, it's quite quite interesting just seeing how people evaded the law and were like no i don't want to pay my taxes throw that tea (laughs) in the harbor baby (laughs) done (laughs) all right but now i've been yammering on for half an hour and i think it's margo's turn um yeah so i mean yeah i'm gonna talk about like i mean sort of about the new world but mainly about sort of the atlantic ocean and also sort of a lot about England. Um, oh, I thought I thought you were going to... I mean, if we're in the Atlantic Ocean, I wanted to say, like, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, you could say. Right? Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh, I, I just really wanted you to phrase it as the Pirates of the Caribbean. For, oh, for well, purposes. I mean, so, like, yeah. <laughs> yes. There, there are pirates in the Caribbean. <laughs> but, um, so... Okay, pirates, right? Yes, tell me <laughs> so, all about them. I am delighted. So pirates was a piracy was a big deal, right? And um, especially in the early modern period, uh, this um, second half of the 17th century into the beginning of the 18th century is what uh, historically is known as the golden age of piracy. Um, and because of some writings and novelizations of certain events did take place in the Caribbean. Like a lot of our like imaginings of piracy in this period take place, you know, in the Bahamas, Jamaica, that sort of area. Um, Was that where all of the piracy was happening? No. No, it was not. But But it is is like... Pirates of the Caribbean a perfectly accurate 10 out of 10 movie? 100%. (laughs) It is... Everything happened um, exactly like that. Frame for frame. There are definitely cursed... 16th century, 17th century pirates out there still to this day. Uh, All right, I just I needed that. <laughs> yeah, needed needed the confirmation. Tons of historical evidence for this. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the golden age of piracy. So um, right, uh, and this we think of it as the golden age of piracy because um, this was a period when there was like a lot of shipping happening across the Atlantic. Uh, colonization had sort of like really t- taken off, so people were like they had plantations going in the Caribbean and in the southern. Uh, English colonies, there was the fur trade coming from what became Canada, all of these things, like there's stuff being shipped back and forth. Um, And 
but by like the time we get into like the later 18th century after you know with like the the american war for independence happening and then the 19th century there was very extensive um uh campaigns to stop piracy led by the british navy um and like these these uh, campaigns to end organized crime on the Atlantic. Um, so this had to do with like uh, people abducting like all, like people uh, attacking slave ships to steal the already human trafficked people from the slave ships. This had to do with like um, one ending the Atlantic slave trade. This had to do with like stopping piracy. This had to do with uh especially as we get into the 18th century with um, American ships trying to stop British and Canadian ships uh, who were impressing U.S. citizens into British naval service because they were like, you're not really American. That's not a real thing. We just took a break from the war to deal with the French for a minute. You don't get to be on your own. What? I mean... I hate that I have to say this, but in fairness, they weren't picky about who they impressed into service. It wasn't just Americans. It was no, anyone they could find. It was any person they could find. Yes, it was, it was everyone. To... But, um, their reasoning for why um, we then couldn't go to war with yes. Britain and Canada was, well, we didn't do anything wrong because they were English citizens. And we were like, no. Uh, anyway, War of 1812, guys. It was about a bunch of other stuff, too, but... Yeah, it's... Impressment was one of the things that we wrote in bold font. <laughs> um, so, anyway, uh, and this is also a period of privateering, um, and we'll get into that dis- distinction in a little bit. Um, so, what uh, exactly is piracy? Um Essentially what it is, is, quote-unquote, the unsanctioned pillage uh, of independent vessels, right? Um, So, hold on, let me just find that. Remember, kids, as long as it's sanctioned, you're not a pirate, you're just a privateer. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to get into that. So, um, and there's, like, some sort of questions about what what really was piracy even like legally in this time so generally it's committing committing crimes on the sea of any kind really could be piracy um so it's it's most commonly um like the pillaging of an independent vessel or a vessel that is sanctioned to be sailing by um a crown of some sort and this is a, an unsanctioned vessel boarding the ship without permission and taking stuff from it. Um, it could also be um, the unsanctioned pillage by descent from the sea of land targets, such as port t- towns. Um, and also because of um, how sovereignty sort of worked, there wasn't um, an established way for people to prosecute crimes that happened on the high seas they were sort of like outside of the limits of what a um 
like a, a nation at this time which like we're still sort of getting into the like full firm idea of a nation state what a nation at this time could like actually prosecute so um england and the netherlands and a couple of other uh countries at this time so this is the early 17th century established um admiralty courts um in which they could prosecute crimes committed at sea so then how they defined it was which still becomes like how we define um the jurisdiction of where a crime is committed right if it's on the ship that is flying the flag of that country the crime is committed then that country can uh, prosecute the people who committed that crime but it could be piracy but also other crimes um sodomy petty theft and drunkenness um could be prosecuted in admiralty courts uh and then because again they hadn't totally defined like where this admiralty court stood in the legal jurisdiction of the land pirates would be um like if they were convicted of said crime uh mostly like piracy was a hanging offense so they would be hanged um below tidal limits so you would be hanged at at low tide and then the tide would come in and technically you weren't like on the land anymore you were in the ocean um to sort of reinforce this land sea divide and make it clear that like a a legal this like line hadn't been been crossed because there wasn't a a clear uh like legal precedent for a lot of this um now privateering was slightly different sometimes um in the 16th and 17th century privateering was called cursaring um and essentially it was the sanctioned raiding of private individuals or commercial vessels um during wartime generally um and privateers were privately outfitted sea raiders um, who were operating uh, with a mark from a monarch or sometimes from a local governor. So that comes in with um, the American War for Independence, where local governors of um, the colonies, if like the, the local governor was a patriot right um would set up well or like the recognized governor for the crown both sides would sort of establish privateers um in all of the 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 bays and along the coast to break down trade lines either for the continental army or for british um soldiers uh that's a little later but like this was happening sort of all over Europe and in the colonies and wherever um especially um during this period the like sort of main victims of English pirates and privateers were the Spanish um and they had like a lot of feelings about this apparently um poor Spain yeah Um, well, because, so, so, right, this is a period where there's, like, a definite struggle for power over the sea. So, number one, right, the, um, England and Spain are, are at war during this time, um, sort of, like, on and off for a really long time. Um, but also, uh, like, there's a, there's a struggle for maintaining power over, 
American colonies and also for sea power on the Atlantic. Um, so how they're creating the image of their nation is being really affected by who is getting all of their shit stolen. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a, this sort of a big thing that happens in like studying piracy is looking at how the Spanish, the subjects of the Spanish Empire uh, reacted to being pirates' main victims. Because a lot of pirates, especially the ones that we remember now, um, were English. So we have right the the sort of famous figures like Francis Drake, Henry Morgan, and William Kidd, uh, who acted both as pirates and as privateers over the course of their careers um but uh the spanish um like really didn't think of themselves as being particularly victimized and they were working really hard to like fight back against this idea and um were joining up with other like seafaring nations to try and like protect themselves and stuff. Um, what am I? Sorry, I'm just looking through. Um, but like for the actual like pirates or privateers, which I also didn't explain. Um, if you were a privateer, right, you needed the the mark from your monarch or governor, um, but also you would have to exchange a portion of what you took from your privateering and give it to said monarch or governor um, in yeah. exchange for continuing your, essentially, piracy. Um, do, 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 do. But for the most part, right, um, piracy remained a, uh, a criminal activity. Um, privateering was, was not as prevalent as just straight up being a pirate. Um, and it seems that throughout the golden age of piracy, these like pirate cycles, these periods when there's a lot more piracy, seems to be linked to chronic unemployment and um, these like uh home bases that were being built up on islands um yeah in the caribbean and also sort of along um the american coast where pirates could like like build up a, a community and a protective space for themselves and um, these were places where they built up a culture of, like, sharing what they rated equitably amongst themselves and caring for each other and those who had been, like, wounded during their pirating activities and who, like, could no longer pirate for whatever reason, right? There was, like, this sense of, like, the social maintenance that happened on these island bases, which is, like, pretty unique. Um, and the fact that these existed then, um, like, uh, has sort of made historians question sort of, like, what is going on with the culture of piracy? Like, 
because it's emerging in this time of like great societal shift whether or not actual pirates are sort of like radicals um who are trying to like find a way one to like live and survive but also to like undermine the power of the elites and like create a more equitable society and there are some historians who have like who have argued that um that like they were purposefully living on the margins of the law that they were purposefully targeting specific ships that they then like had a very clear social organization on these island bases um but more recent research has sort of shown that most pirates didn't think of themselves in that way necessarily um like they weren't like out here being marxist or anything um yeah they were mostly born of like desperation um and created a sort of image and culture of themselves as like being enterprising and sort of conniving um but not necessarily like revolutionary um and that the societies that they built up and the social care that they had uh is like a less utopian and more well if i get shot on the next thing like on our next raid i need to make sure that somebody's gonna pull this like ball out of my shoulder um that is fair and so it's a it's more like that and that their their aim was generally to spend a period of time being a pirate and gain enough wealth to go back to living a life on land uh, where they wouldn't be in like total destitution. Um, and we have like evidence of pirate captains and stuff ensuring that like their crew could like read and had certain skills so that when they weren't pirating anymore if they didn't want to just like live in these weird pirate communities they could go back to like their regular lives um so i mean that's pretty cool um very nice (laughs) yeah and then in terms of like what is happening like on a sort of larger social scale outside of like the actual like pirate lives, um, a sort of like a, a few things are happening in the way that like the nation states, the governments are viewing piracy. Um, so there's been an argument made that um, licensing privateers and sea raiding was an early form of like military subcontracting um so right it's like it's profitable for the people who are doing the privateering um and low risk high return for the governments right they're not putting any of their people or any of their resources into the privateers um but they if it's successful, they're going to get a bunch of funds from the activity. Uh, and they can always, like, deny that that 
privateer had anything to do with them, that they were actually just a pirate. If like some sort of, you know, international diplomatic issue came from it. Um, And like these uh, privateering and like large sort of uh, the investment in like naval activity, privateering, piracy, all of this like money that can be gained from being on the ocean really spurred the growth of Atlantic port cities, um, which also helps with the development of um, the, particularly the English empire, right? And so we have like this struggle throughout the 17th century of like the English and the Spanish. um, And there's an argument that uh, piracy in the beginning, uh, their support of privateers, and then the very strategic way that they went about trying to stop piracy is, a major part of what led to the rise of the English Navy and English supremacy over the Atlantic in this period. Um, so, right, we have in the beginnings of this war the the monetary gains that they make from privateers, um, that it's, like, very low risk. They're able to sort of, like, fight this Atlantic war without having to put a lot of investment into it. They can focus on what's happening in Europe. Um, but then later, as the like um, 17th century comes to a close and we get into the 18th century and they're making like a very clear concerted effort to, stamped out, to stamp out piracy, um, we can see this as like how they are making a statement about what it means to be a modern state, what the modern uh, like national military is capable of, where their reach and empire goes to. Um, and they're making that clear to their citizens, but also to other nations. And the success that they have um, up through like the, the entire... Um, 18th century um, but the fact that like the last sort of surge of piracy in the Atlantic was in the 1810s and that they like were really able to like stop that from being a major issue in the 19th century um, makes it clear like the the control that the English Navy had over the Atlantic and the protections that it was able to afford to like law-abiding um sea merchants <laughs> uh, so yeah it was like a the the usefulness of pirates in the development of the modern English state in particular is really kind of fascinating also um, if we're curious just for kicks the uh, tradition of walking the plank or the practice of walking the plank came from that last surge of piracy and the 1810s and it was cuban pirates who were doing that um i'm not sure why it's just that that was a little fact that i found so yeah um 
piracy was used as a weapon of war for emergency states and then used as a marker of power um, to show that the state had the power to like stamp out crime far outside of its actual borders um, and that people have sort of viewed pirates in a lot of lights that they were you know revolutionary or criminal or useful to empire building um, but essentially for the most part they were just guys trying to stay afloat <laughs> um, like they were <laughs> ah, took me a second i'm not i'm not a fast on the uptake today what can i yeah, say yeah they were essentially just trying to um find a way out of the like class and social status that they were born into that might not have allowed them to survive easily um like they were imagining they were probably, you know, somewhere between being truly revolutionary and just trying to make ends meet, right? Uh, like, they had a vision of what the, the world could be, but knew that, like, they didn't have the power to create that really on their own and on the ocean. Um, and so they were using the skills that they had and or the skills that they were given um, to, like, es escape a pretty bleak fate of being poor in the 17th century which would just really not be fun um so yeah and like I, we don't have time to talk about like there were female pirates there were all sorts of like crazy shit going on with pirates but um there's just say that as if we don't have bonuses where you could definitely overview. tell me about female pirates <laughs> well i don't you know <laughs> We're going to talk about Robin Hood, okay? I wasn't prepared for all that. All right, all right. Um, but there's some really cool, uh, it's a really cool history, uh, a whole field. If people want to look into it, you should do that. They should do that. And with that, we will see you all next week. Yeah. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Bapiaga Project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and our website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways, and there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!